Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. Now, this is fascinating to me because normally when someone says 28 years of marriage, there are cheers and there's, yeah, but I guess you all got that married thing down around here. So that's good. I mean, it's fascinating and incredible to me. And the reason why is because if you saw the stone brown, fine, cocoa brown woman I married, you would be cheering. Because I tell you, every day, every day when I wake up, I know I, I've got plenty of the apologetics of love that demonstrate to me the proof of the existence that there's a God of grace. And that after 28 years of her engaging and viewing my depravity, uh, and then that she still loves me the way only the love of Jesus could demonstrate, there is beauty in the business and in the reality of marriage. Let me stop right there. Now, it's fascinating to me that Dr. Lederbach uh, would say to Dr. Aiken that he has a James Bond shirt on, but he didn't tell me I had a James Bond suit on. So I'm not quite sure why he didn't say that. And maybe because it's interesting. Coming here always fills me with a level of appropriate nervousness. Because it was 1997, really 1996, when I first received the call. And I was 36 years old, and I received the call that someone said, they want you to do the chapel at Southeastern. 1996. I was only 37 years old. Uh, and at that time, when I got the call, you've got to understand something for me. Uh, I am a historian. And I thought, wait a minute, there must be a mistake. Uh, they want me to come and do what? They wanted me to come and do chapel. And I wrestled with that. I got the call around December. I had to speak in February 1997. And then I wrestled with that because I thought, wait a minute, because you must understand, I am a historian. And I had some biases with the Southern Baptists. Yes, I know that a couple of years earlier they had made an apology, but I thought, do they really want me? I'm not even Southern Baptist. I'm on staff of a parachurch organization, that there's still conversation about the legitimacy of the parachurch organization back in the 90s, that was true. And I thought, do I really want to come? And then when I came, man, my biases was there because I was met by Paige Patterson, who had an interesting hairdo. <laughs> and then he had those cowboy boots on. And then I thought, oh, no. And then there was this young man that I met who had these southern charm and sensibilities, who was so incredibly engaging. 
And Dr. Patterson even whispered about him that this was one of his favorite men, incredible men that you just met. And that was Dr. Danny Aiken. And what threw me off is he reminded me of myself because I am Southern. I am country. You will discover that probably as I get excited. Uh, I'm from Barco, North Carolina, which no one probably knows of Barco. There may be someone here. I doubt it. But I mean, it is country. But when I met another country cool person in Dr. Aiken, because he had Southern sensibilities, I mean, that tone of voice, but he had a kingdom reality about him. And that I saw that in 1997. And that kingdom reality was one that I saw even then, that I said, man, God, you have some incredible plans for him. Now, I didn't know that Dr. Aiken would be country cool in such a way that he is an innovator beyond words, because I would have never dreamed in 1997 that I would be speaking in chapel and only one other person has a bow tie on in the whole place. No suits, jeans. Faculty, I know you are feeling free right now. And there are amens on that. But I had biases. Quite a few biases. And now for me, after all these years of ministry and after all these years of engaging even with the text, because one of the things that happen, your nervousness will drive you to make sure you're staying in the text. And I can remember what I preached on. It was 1 Peter chapter 5, and I stayed verse by verse. And then I got invited back, maybe 10 years later, and I said, oops, I must have made a mistake. But when I came back again, I can remember I talked about Philippians chapter 3. And then the next time I was invited, I dealt with John chapter 4. And you say, how in the world can you remember that? Well, because this is a special moment and a special place that I want to treat with a great deal of care. And yet... I'm now at a place in my life to where I'm looking honestly. After having been in full-time ministry since 1984, after now in a journey to where I'm seeing some of the realities of what I prayed for and thought about, because I live a life now that's thoroughly not only a, a pastor, but a pastor who understands the practical reality of the pavement, which is what I love about my work with the YMCA, but I have biases. And maybe even you have biases because maybe you're even wondering when you say the word YMCA, you are, I'm sure, thinking of a group YMCA, and please don't do that. <laughs> but we have biases. If I was to say the word Miley Cyrus, <laughs> and you see, you didn't even wait until I finished the sentence. Because the sentence is, Miley Cyrus is a cultural representation of the deep need that you're going to have to engage. But when I say the word, there are biases that automatically stay in your brain. And some of you say, James, when you say Miley Cyrus, I'm trying to get stuff out of my brain. <laughs> if I say Kanye West, you say, you're not going to grunt this time. You say, you got me once. But you would not have associated that in 2020 he's running for president. Why are you laughing at that? 
I would have a dream that someone who said, you're fired. I would have never dreamed that someone who is known, again, for power out of control, would actually be a serious contender, would actually be leading the way in the Republican Party in the polls. Because I have biases. We all have biases. And I would suggest to you this morning that those biases shape us more than what we would ever imagine. Those biases sometimes can trap us, as Maya Angelou says, as the caged bird. The caged bird sings with a fearful thrill of things unknown but long for still. And its tune is heard on a distance, for the caged bird sings for freedom. We don't want to be trapped by biases. But we often are, because our brains are hardwired for biases. Some are even suggesting now that neurologically that the internet and Google and others have figured us out that, that some have even suggested that your search engine, when you search Google, that Google will bring up things on your search page based on your past searches that you have done. That is frightening to me. That technology realizes that we are hardwired for biases. See, when I say this name, this quote, you may dismiss it because of your bias. And there's some things very much I disagree with Richard War on. But Richard War suggests we do not need to think ourselves into new ways of living. We need to live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Because I wonder if that's going to be the biggest challenge that we face, if it's the biggest challenge that I'm facing right now, is dealing with my biases. Because there are certain things that we do not want to admit that have shaped us, that have developed us. And, and even here, as you are engaged in an institution that is designed to help you not have biases, and yet you are going to listen to professors who are shaped by their biases, and you can see them all around you. When you begin to look at the books that you read, have you ever begun to wonder that they have some biases because most of the books that you read and you study and the experts all come from the same cultural framework? If you don't believe me, simply go to your bookstore and you will notice that there are certain people who are strangely absent because they're biases. Unintentionally, can you imagine growing up and never seeing anyone who looks like you, who becomes your professor or your doctor or your lawyer, can you imagine that you can grow up and if all of your professors have been of European descent, if all of your teachers, all of the doctors, all of the policemen in your life have been of a certain, can you imagine that you might actually think and have the bias that white people are smarter than you? You can go through your university experience never even learning from someone. And then when you look at all the books that you read and all the quotes that are celebrated, they all come from a particular time period. And that is not to say that is wrong, but here's what that is to say. They're biases. You know, I actually had myths about Africa because I actually thought that it was the deep, dark continent of anti-intellectual, savage people. I actually believed that. 
I actually believe that, that Africa, and then if someone would have just taught me biblically and helped me to see that even biblically, the most powerful civilizations are right there geographically in the book of Genesis in Egypt and other places, I would have known that the Tarzan TV show that I watched was not the truth. Because I grew up with Tarzan thinking some white man from, who was not even from the jungle could come and rule a whole tribe of people, and he was from an airplane that was dropped down as a baby raised by a chimpanzee. And all of a sudden, he's smarter than everybody else, and Tarzan gets to be king of the jungle? Boy, are those some biases. Why is it that every superhero, even the ones from outer space, didn't look like me? biases. And even now, we're in a cultural time period where we can't even talk and deal with our biases. Where we can't even have the conversation right now, even as we talk about complex situ situations. Black lives matter. All lives matter. Biases. This morning, I am so glad I'm here and I'm so glad I'm with you because you and I both know there is one hope in dealing with our biases. There is one hope because God's word is designed to deconstruct our biases. This morning, I want you to wrestle with me the burden of bias, but let's go to a passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you a familiar passage of Scripture, one that I'm going to take the risk that, that you will tune out when I say turn there. Luke chapter 23. This familiar text of Scripture and you say, James, are you sure this is true? And, and I know because we have biases, and this conversation shouldn't be a conversation that's uncomfortable for us, but, but really it's what the Word of God is designed to do, is to really deconstruct and reconstruct an appropriate way of thinking. Don't you know that that's why Hebrews 4.12 lets us know this, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, okay, I get it, Paul. You're suggesting that the Word of God should be the one thing that deconstructs my cultural, my sociological, my psychological biases. That's why your Word is so important. Your Word is not important just so I can pass my New Testament or my Old Testament survey class. Proper exegesis is not important just so that I give a sermon that they will give thumbs up on, but it's because I need to exegete even my own soul. And Paul suggests in Hebrews that that's what the Word of God will do, and it will do it with surgical precision. And I'm so glad Luke, the physician, teaches in such a way that there is scientifically surgical precision, but then he artistically comes across as a spoken word artist or as someone who's doing hip-hop. Because he's able to artistically do that in, in the way he gives stories that build upon story. In the way he sets up the frame of thinking, so much so that Luke really knows that you won't fully understand him, Theophilus, 
because he's writing to a person that does not come from the Jewish frame of thinking. And therefore, he's writing in such a way with, again, the accuracy that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus comes to deconstruct any bias that you might have. It's why Luke highlights stories that the other gospel accounts do not highlight because he's getting after that bias. And so, therefore, Luke will tell stories where the protagonist is the most interesting person. It's the antagonist because the Samaritan who's the antagonist that the Jew hates becomes the protagonist, becomes the hero of the story. Where? Because in the story of the good Samaritan, he is the hero. Luke is able to talk about Samaritans because he's trying to deconstruct biases. So you notice in Luke that Jesus is touching and loving and engaging people that really change the way you think and would challenge the bias of those who would read the text in this time period. But of all things, now in this climactic moment that we are so familiar with, in Luke chapter 23, let me read for you these words. Please try to listen as though you have not heard them before. Luke chapter 23, beginning, beginning with verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Here's Jesus in his most painful moment of carrying that part of the cross, and he has been beaten and bruised in his tragedy that he can't even carry it. But yet again, even in the midst of that, he's still able to speak truth. Then in verse 22, you see the scenes of the story. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Surprisingly enough, one of the criminals who were hanged there railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. But yo, bro, why you at it? Would you help a brother out and save us too? James White translation. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. You see, isn't it amazing? But often, first of all, our biases are discovered in those deep moments of pain. Luke understands this, and he has this story that is really the climactic story that really is the one that goes beyond what the brain could imagine because the hero now is in one of the darkest places one could be. Jesus is in a place of pain. He's, he's on the skull. He's publicly, again, being crucified. And he's between two criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And yet the tragedy here is not an unexpected tragedy. But you even see biases because the disciples could not even get their minds around this when Jesus gave them plenty of clues that this is what he came to do, that he came to die. And you could tell they had their biases because their biases had them all running away hiding, except for John. And yet this tragedy would be the thing that would awaken even their biases. And I wonder sometimes for us if we would only allow our tragedies to awaken us to our biases, if we would not simply move past the moments. We say that we are gospel-centered people. Well, gospel-centered people should always be able to stand firm in the midst of tragedy because our story is rooted and grounded in tragedy. Yet it's difficult. But think about it, and this is where God is such an amazing creator because we are wired that when you talk about tragedy, that your brain even releases endorphins and hormones. You and I are designed to stop for a moment, to pause, and to collect ourselves, not medicate ourselves, not, not live in denial and not facing the truth. If anyone can be truthful about the tragic reality of the world that we live in, it should be us. Man, do we have a burden to not allow our biases to shape our lives. Because God's Word is designed to deconstruct our biases. But you can see in this story that even power, power can create a distraction for you not to see your bias. Do you hear what the soldiers are saying in verse 35 and 37? It says, and the people stood by, even before the soldiers said, look at how many people said this, uh, stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Then not only did the people standing by and the rulers, but then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and off him sour wine saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over his head, he's king of the Jews. One of the things that makes it difficult for us to deal with our bias is power. When you have power, it is difficult to see how you're really wired. And that's one of the dangers sometimes when we escape to our places where we're empowered. May this not become a powerful place that creates more biases, but may this become a place where we always allow ourselves to understand that when you feel like you're empowered, that you often have biases. You see, the soldiers have this illusion. And here's what's interesting in the text, and we know this as Bible students, they have the illusion of power. The rulers have the illusion of power. 
The soldiers have the illusion of power. The crowd has the illusion of power. They're even getting theologically in some places in this story. Why, why didn't he just call the angels down if he is the son of God? There are times when I believe God allows us to see that we're not as powerful as we think. And rather than running away from those times, maybe we need to lean, lean into those times so we can discover our biases. Maybe we need to lose the illusion of control. Maybe, maybe all this going on in America does not suggest somehow that he is coming back again. Maybe our circumstances shouldn't influence our eschatology as much as we, it does. Maybe we got to understand that maybe God has given us the blessing to remove our biases when you look at the cultural framework that we live in. Because we know, just like in this text, that God is sovereign. What they don't understand is God isn't going, God is chilling at the crucifixion because God knows he's fulfilling thousands of years of prophecy. What they don't understand is they're even saying the very words that God suggested poetically would be said in Psalm 22. What they don't understand is, is that God is in control because he's sovereign. See, it's interesting our biases that cause us to be weak theologically when we don't have power, because when we don't have power, I would suggest that it is the laboratory of examining what you really believe. And here Jesus is in a place where he seems like he has no power. But it's an orchestrated moment according to Isaiah. It's an orchestrated moment according to Genesis chapter 3. Because you remember that promise that you will bruise his heel but it's getting ready to be a party right now because he's going to stomp your head. <laughs> this morning, sometimes power distracts us from seeing our bias. But then sometimes people would define the moment in light of their bias. This one criminal is defining the moment because of his own personal pain. Notice what he says in the text. If you are the Christ, and I know, notice how he says it. First of all, sheesh, save yourself. Because I know the thief probably is looking at him. We know biblically Jesus has been scourged. The thief is looking at him going, man, because he doesn't have a theology of suffering. Man, your flesh is hanging open, nails in your hands, nails in your feet. Fix yourself up. Because the thief has no room for horrific pictures because he doesn't have a God that is big enough to handle that. But then he says, but help us out too. <laughs> we, we know that some of us have that same kind of selfish prayer because of our bias. The reason why we want God to somehow rescue the world that we live in, because some of you single people going, I don't want the rapture to happen before I get married. Jeez. The reason why we want to make sure that God saves certain things is because you want to live a comfortable life in America. 
The reason why you want him to preserve certain things is because you don't want to live in a world where you may not have power and you may have to have a prayer life like never before. The reason why sometimes maybe you quickly jump over and become a part of the same hate speech of other groups that disagree with us is because like this thief, hey, do something, God, but would you help us out too while you're at it? This morning, we do need some answers. How then do we deal with our biases? There are a couple of answers that are very clear in the text that are familiar answers. Here's the first solution. In verse 34, it's one that rang out and some scholars suggest he said it several times. But here's the first solution. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First solution to dealing with our biases is understanding there is radical forgiveness that only comes through Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's interesting to me about this is we often don't talk about this, but, but Jesus has this accurate picture of sin. He has this accurate picture of our problems. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It, it is not just forgive them, for they know not what they do, because they do not know, and I believe this is true, they do not know for some of them that they're crucifying the Son of God. The Romans do not have the knowledge that the Jews have in understanding who I am as Messiah. So I believe he's saying that as well. But I also believe Jesus is given a correct diagnosis of sin because you and I do not have a full grasp of the impact of our sin. We do not understand, and we're beginning to see it, that the choices you make now will echo in eternity. We do not understand that, that sin really isn't. And how many more stories do we need? And I want to say this gently because I've been frustrated by how we're bashing some of our brothers whose weaknesses have been exposed. I've been frustrated because how many of us want our weaknesses exposed? But what it says to me, Jesus, I'm glad you said, Father, forgive them for they do not what they do. Because I wondered this morning, do we fully know the full ramifications of that lie you told? Do you fully understand that, that that decision, and some of us are experiencing those decisions, that that divorce that you had and that you got will now echo in children and your grandchildren? Jesus, as he says, dealing with our biases, what do we do? We fully embrace what he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. I am glad Jesus accurately straightens up what Satan mixed up. Whenever you're studying Golgotha, you must always go back to the other garden. You, you must always go back to the other garden because, you see, Satan, again, when he pointed to a tree, he gave Eve and Adam the illusion that they could know that they could be just like God, knowing good and evil. The second Adam gives the right picture of sin. No, you, will, you don't even want to know. You know not what you do. But then there was a thief here who was able to see how to deal with biases. 
Quickly, look at what this thief says. He, he does something amazing. One of the criminals, verse 39, who hang there, are you not the Christ, save yourself and us, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here's the second thing. Forgiveness is important, but let me tell you the second thing if you're going to deal with your biases, vulnerability. We're getting what we deserve. No excuses. Look, first of all, he's innocent, we're guilty. Until you and I are vulnerable with the reality of who we are, we will always have biases. Until we admit that, yes, and even in this institution, even for us, and I wrestle with this as a conservative biblical thinker, I wrestle with this, but many of the books that I read have created the situation that exists today. And we might suggest that slavery happened over 200 years, hundreds of years ago. It went on for a period of 100 years, of 200 years plus, and then you had Jim Crow. But here's the reality, here's the deal. Why did it go on? I still wrestle with and I grieve that we created theological justification for something to happen in our world today because of our bias. And because of our biases, Jonathan Edward would have sinners in the hands of an angry God, but because of his biases, he could not see slavery. Because of the biases of many theological institutions, they could not see that why in the world can you go and reach the world but not deal with the injustice that exists in your world today? Those biases are very much a part of our history, and I love that does not erase John Calvin, and again, that does not erase Martin Luther and his anti-Semitic ways, that does not erase any of those historians, but I must read them understanding that they had biases, and that we have inherited some of those biases. We have made mockery of many in the African-American church to the point where you have African-American students who do not think that they can hear anything from a man who looks like them and that if someone does handle the text, they are an exception rather than the theological rule because we have convinced people that we're emotional and anti-intellectual. It is why I do not like the jokes that we give some of us when we say, y'all are not with me. In my church, you got to give me an amen. No, you don't, because I think you're really with me. I can see in your eyes you're saying, preach it, James. I can see that some of you are disrupted and disturbed. I don't need a false emotional amen because of a character of what you think the black church is because you don't understand this experience. What I need is a response to the Word of God, and we've got to break through our biases. So this thief says, we're getting what we deserve, vulnerability, would we stop trying to be innocent? But this man is the only one who has done nothing wrong. And then look at his vulnerability. He says, hey, Jesus, oh, 
this guy is crazy to me. This thief is amazing. Hey, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That's the only way I'll deal with my biases is this. He's willing to trust a Savior who is at his worst. His hands are nailed, his feet are nailed, his flesh is hanging open, and this thief has enough faith to say, but you are the man, you are the king, not because your hands have come down and done anything for me, but I'm willing to be vulnerable and know that you are, and watch this, my king. Until we have a Jesus who is king when he is not performing at our best, the world will see that we are biased. This thief on the cross has faith. That is incredible. Because I need Jesus to perform for me before I trust him. I'll trust him if he can assure me that I'm going to make all A's this semester. I'll trust him if he'll assure me that the tuition is going to get paid. I'll trust him if he can help me get over some of my hurts and healing. This thief says, you're my king, remember me. And he says, I know who you are. And his biases have been deconstructed. And what does Jesus do? This day. <sighs> I love it. Thank you, Dr. Akins. Dr. Akins says, I love it. I do too. Listen, this is why I can deal with my biases, because I've got a Savior who will not make me suffer, who will not give me guilt, who will not deal with shame. I've got a Savior that deals with my biases in such a radical way that I can be honest. I've got a Savior who, yes, we might have repented as Southern Baptists in 1995, but we've got a Savior who gives us the beauty of gracious repentance over and over again. Here's why we can do that, because this this day you will be with me. You will be with my presence in paradise. The world needs to see a group of leaders who are saying, we've got a king who's king right now, no matter what the cultural conversations might be, because this day, he's a God of this day, you'll be with me in paradise. So this morning, I invite you to go back to this moment in history this true moment of the cross. I invite you to understand that forgiveness allows us to deal with our biases. And you know what? No more biases, fresh new start. I invite you to understand that our pain, that some of us, God has pain because he's trying to free us from our biases. I invite you to understand that the gospel gives us the freedom to deal with our biases. As I close, probably the greatest story that I've seen in modern times of removing biases took place June 17th. June 17th in Charleston, South Carolina, 2015, at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. What people don't understand is even as I said that, but it was the senior pastor that was Clementa C. Pinckney. And we know what happened that Dylan walked into that church, and I use his first names because I can't help but think that they used his first name that night at the Bible study. And what people don't understand is that night at the Bible study, there were five pastors, there were four pastors and one Bible study leader there. And out of the nine people that were killed, 
four pastors went Bible study leader. And in that night, yes, nine people were tragically murdered. And you know what happened? The gospel, all biases were removed because what took place is that you saw a group of people, family members at his arraignment, and and the image and the words still echo in my mind. We forgive you. We're praying for your soul. One of the pastors, her son, and daughter, high school students. My mother would want us to forgive you. The only way that our biases can be removed is when stories like that become alive. Someone should be writing a paper on the gospel presentation of that story. Maybe our biases cause us to skip right over it because we all know that Clementa Pinckney was a Democratic senator. Maybe our biases don't even cause us to look at it because it was a contextualized traditional black church and we all know that God's expression is not in the traditional church and maybe that messed with our biases because the message of the gospel to the world came from a predominantly black church that was founded by a black freedom fighter named Denmark Vesey and that goes against our biases. But I can't help but think as I'm speaking to you, there are some other biases that will be broken. Because three days later, he rose again from the dead. May you and I be courageous enough to carry the burden of God breaking our biases. Let me pray for you. Father, I am praying for men and women who I believe that you're going to use them to transform the world. But, oh, Lord, there's a need for some men and women who say that, God, deal with my biases. And you can do that, because forgive me, because we don't know sometimes what we do and the ramification of sin. You can do that because, yes, we are guilty. We're receiving what we deserve. But even though we're guilty, we're free because we are able to be in your kingdom, and you are the king. And today we're with you in paradise right now. Oh, Father, would you give the men and women faculty, Dr. Aiken, everyone in this room, May this become an institution that will continue to, in gospel precision, deal with our biases so the world will see the blessing and the rule and reign and king that we serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, We hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.southeastern.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.